Here's your opportunity to listen and learn from the most successful people driving growth and success in Palm Beach County and beyond. Welcome to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principled Wealth Advisors. Carrie and his guests share stories and insights from Palm Beach County's most successful executives, entrepreneurs, and community leaders. Learn how they made it to where they are today, what principles guide them, how they mentor others to achieve success, and more. This is Kerry Stamp, and you're listening to the Business in Paradise podcast. Today on the podcast, I have a great guest. It's Richard Rendina, who is the chairman and CEO of Rendina Healthcare Real Estate, based right here in Jupiter, Florida. The Rendina family has been given real estate for decades in Palm County. And uh, Rich is going to be a phenomenal guest to give us a little bit of the history of how the development has gone in the part of the county. So, Rich, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kerry. Nice to be here. Rich, you are now running a company that uh, your father started. Tell us about that, when it happened, uh, how, how he got into the business. Sure. Uh, my father, self-made man, born in Newark, New Jersey, grew up in both there and in Fort Lauderdale, Florida was a Florida State University grad, which is where he met my mother. And he was recruited into the accounting world for starters, worked for Coopers and Librant. We bounced around a little bit, but by the time I was five, we had landed in Palm Beach County. And he was uh, got into the real estate business, doing asset management, raising investor funds, then branched out onto his own with a colleague named Don Sands. And Don's father, a longtime real estate uh, mogul, Irving Sands, wrote them their first check to get started. They had hopes of acquiring kind of retail shopping plazas, office buildings. And he got the opportunity through a physician friend of his who needed a new medical office building, Neuroscience Center Institute uh, at the St. Mary's Hospital campus in West Palm Beach. And they, you know, were tired of just cutting rent checks. So... My dad came up with a program where he could share the ownership with the physicians who were tenants in the building. Uh, At that time, really, he could do it without any type of cash investment from the physicians. And he'd give, you know, anywhere from 50 to sometimes 70% of the ownership away to the tenants in the building. And that started to catch on like wildfire. And uh, once tenant bought St. Mary's Hospital, they said, uh, you know, this is great recruiting tool for us and the physicians. We're able to bring them to our campus, restrict competitive services that they may have, and align themselves with us. And of course, referring patients into their hospital and things like that are a natural course. So, Tenant started to send him, you know, across the country. And that's how we became a national healthcare real estate developer, Texas, California. And Arizona were some of the first. Uh, we're now in 18 states where we've done development work. Uh, currently own and manage in about seven or eight states. I have offices in about five. But my father is safe, as I said, you know, self-made man, very entrepreneurial, risk taker for sure. And uh, in this, let's see, it was August of 2005. Uh, he was diagnosed with uh, glioblastoma, very aggressive, the most aggressive type of brain cancer. And uh, he made it longer than they had given him odds for. He ended up making it uh, all the way to December of 2006, but he was only 52 when he passed away. So I was a few weeks from turning uh, 27 at that point. And you know, the plan was for me to, you know, the oldest of three boys to eventually become the the CEO of the company, but obviously happened under circumstances and much quicker than any of us would have liked. But those were the cards I was dealt. So uh, January 2007, I became CEO. I was working full time with the company for about two years at that point. I'd spent a lot of time, you know, as intern for some various summers. Uh, so I was familiar with a lot of the folks that were there and, and, and working, and they were familiar with me, which I think helped a lot. And then, uh, you know, we came right in. We had a year where we came, and then we came right into the Great Recession. So it was a little bit of a perfect storm for a 27-year-old. 
And Rich, you have two brothers and they're also working with you. Is that right? Tell us about your brothers. Yeah, I have two brothers, Michael and David. Michael's the closest in age. Thankfully, we're all bring different talents and different interests to the business, which helps a great deal, I think. Uh, Mike's definitely a numbers guy, chief investment officer, handles you know financing for all of our projects and, and the equity piece as well. And then David, the young buck, he's eight years younger than I am. And uh, he's really jack of all trades. He's got his broker's license. He's trained in Yardi. He's got a background in you know, search engine optimization, marketing, PR, branding. So he's uh, our guru in a number of different senses. But uh, yeah, the three of us all work together. And people always find it hard to believe that we get along both inside the office and outside the office. So, and You know, I can just relate a little bit, but I certainly cannot uh, understand what you went through. I'm 53. So your dad, I will be 53 this year. I guess I'm 52 right now. Your dad passing away at my age just seems so young and uh, yeah. go, going through that. He built this amazing uh, business in a, uh, what seems like a fairly short period of time, but it was probably over a couple of decades that uh, he acquired the, the assets and the resources and, and built this up. As you think about this, what was different, and maybe you just know this anecdotally from stories that he's told, but what was different about doing business in Palm Beach County 25 or 30 years ago uh, when he was doing a lot of this uh, development versus where we're at today? We certainly have more people, right? Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of the probably government, uh, you know, municipality struggles are, are probably much the same. But, you know, I think the biggest difference is, is probably what we felt kind of on a, on a national level. You know, and I know you want to boil this down to Palm Beach County, which I can, you know, by starting at kind of the way healthcare has changed in the past, you know, 10 years, 14 years, uh, really with uh, the beginning of Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act and how that changed the industry for our clients who are traditionally hospitals you know, health systems and physician groups. Uh, and, and then, you know, navigating and taking the time to really understand the impact that healthcare reform was having on their business and then working with them to translate that into putting their vision and making it a tangible reality. Because a major component of healthcare reform is keeping people out of the hospital, not in the hospital. So you don't hear you don't hear hospital CEOs talk as much about daily census and, and butts in beds, which used to be a benchmark that they looked to keep high. Um, now it's about keeping you out. So that's translated very nicely into what our core business is, which is outpatient healthcare real estate. You know, we do have some medical office buildings that have inpatient uses, but for the most part, everything was really being done on campus during my dad's heydays. And when I say on campus, on a health, uh, on a hospital campus, a multi-tenanted building, you know, usually not a lot of tenancy from the hospital itself, mostly physician groups. Now, you know, those still do occur, but I think, you know, at least 50%, if not more, is now transpiring off campus where the hospitals want to bring services into certain markets, demographics, payer mixes, wherever there's a need. And developing an outpatient medical office building at you know 300 bucks a square foot is a much cheaper proposition and entryway into a marketplace than at a million dollars a bed is generally what a hospital can cost an inpatient hospital. So uh, they've wanted to you know, invert their revenue stream where 60% used to be inpatient to where they want outpatient to be 60%. Uh, we've seen that, you know, transpire. And uh, we really had to kind of change the way uh, we did business. You know, the free equity program that really was my dad's claim to fame really, you know, kind of fell out of favor based on financing restrictions and, and construction pricing uh, being a big component of that as well. Uh, but we still like to align ourselves with our tenants and our clients, you know, providing them ownership opportunities to invest side by side. Um, I think most notably here in South Florida, as of late, is partnered with Cleveland Clinic, Florida, for their 72,000 square foot family health center in 
uh, Coral Springs. And that was the first time Cleveland Clinic had ever used a third-party developer for a medical office building. They've got a very sophisticated real estate department and really do it themselves for the most part. But uh, they've seen the need to make their capital go further. And one way to do that is to leverage a real estate developer's balance sheet. And you've really done the same thing with hospital systems and physician practices all over the country. I know that uh, the firm has worked in New Jersey, and as you mentioned, lots of projects out west in Arizona and Texas. Is there a place that you would say that there's a concentration of uh, the projects that you see going forward? You know, we've always really gone where the business has brought us. And, you know, working for the for-profit health systems, such as the tenant healthcare, you know, Universal Health, HCA, as well as the for-profit, you know, investor-owned health systems like a, a LifePoint Regional Care, uh, who have you know large corporate offices in places like Nashville and, and Dallas, but they have hospitals, you know, all over the country in certain regions. Uh, so if we get an opportunity, we look to chase it. Uh, one thing about healthcare is everybody needs it. So, you know, as of late, we've had a big concentration in New Jersey, and that's really relationship-driven But through our RWJ Barnabas Health System. You know, Florida is a little bit of a unique market uh, and physician marketplace, very entrepreneurial physician community here, uh, sometimes looking to develop, you know, their own medical office buildings. Uh, HCA now does it all on their own. Tenet kind of does it all on their own. So... You know, we have to seek out the opportunities and uh, build the characteristics of what the best kind of client for us is. Yeah. No, I mean, I can't say that we've seen any more concentration other than you know, the Northeast for us. And Rich, unlike me, I'm a product of the Midwest and I grew up in Iowa, moved down here from Chicago. Uh, I think you're more of a product of the West Palm Beach area in the, certainly the, at least most of your life in Florida. And if I understand correctly, you went to high school in, in uh, West Palm Beach at Cardinal Newman, and then right. you continued on with the Catholic education at some small university in uh, Indiana. Uh, was mm-hmm. it basketball school or where was it? Yeah, University of Notre Dame. South right. Bend, baby. And at Notre Dame, if I also recall correctly, uh, you brought home a trophy uh, from did. Notre Dame. And she's now the no, mother too. How many children do you have now, Rich? Well, we're, believe it or not, breaking news, we're still counting over here, Terry. So we have four now. And the baby is uh, our first girl. So we have three boys. And our daughter, Grace, will turn two in September. And then uh, in March, we found out my wife, Trisha is pregnant with baby number five. So that'll keep me working here in, uh, yeah, Ab- business in paradise. That'll keep me working. Yeah. That's right. And Trisha's from the uh, Chicago suburban area. Is that right? She is. Chicago girl. You know, I, oddly enough, I only spent 13 months of my life there, but I was born in Arlington Heights, Chicago, in Cook County, same county. Uh, she was born in, which is pretty wild. But yeah, it took me going away to South Bend, Indiana to realize that I grew up in a place where people go on vacation. And after a stint on Wall Street, I you know, was ready to jump into the family business, thought I'd go out to our office in La Jolla, California. But the old man convinced me to come back south. And uh, you know, the rest is, the rest is history. So tell us uh, about the interlude between the time you leave Notre Dame and you go work in uh, New York and Wall Street. What were you doing there? I was working for Lehman Brothers. You know, as soon as I left, the place you know crumbled. <laughs> so I went to work for Lehman Brothers. I had an opportunity to do an internship in between my junior and senior year. I was there in the August. I left around <clears throat> mid-August 2001. So it wasn't, you know, Two weeks later, a month later, 9-11 happened, and Lehman was headquartered in those world financial centers uh, right there next to the Twin Towers, World Trade Center. So uh, very scary, you know, hit home for sure, you know, with the folks that I had grown to really know and build relationships with during my time. I was working as an analyst with the investment a banking development group that sat with all their private client advisors. 
um, was there as a portal for any of their clients or potential clients that had any type of investment banking needs, M&A, IPO, you name it. Uh, I worked for a guy who I'm still very close with, who had been on Wall Street 40 years at that time. You know, the first company he took public was Intel. So uh, he was a tech, is a tech banker. And, you know, being in the class of 9-11, the job market was not in good shape. You know, the, the career fairs were very poorly attended. Everybody was kind of grabbing at straws trying to figure out what the next move was going to be. And I was fortunate enough to have Lehman call me up and ask me if I wanted to come back full-time once I graduated, uh, which was a no-brainer for me. And it was really further solidified by taking a family business class at Notre Dame my senior year. And, you know, I knew eventually I was always going to go work the family business, but that really, you know, caused me to say, hey, let's go out and do this, do something on your own at first, you know, have somebody else you know, train you, you can make mistakes without, you know, everybody, the home home business, you know, family business, seeing those mistakes and cut your teeth and then come in with your own self-confidence and and business relationships, which has, you know, been great. So it sounds like good advice. And it's advice that I hear a lot from family business consultants is uh, uh, send the kids out to uh, find some experience in the real world before they they come back to work in kind of the microcosm under the parents' noses. Hey, so- Wasn't what my dad wanted. It wasn't what my dad wanted. He wanted to come. Hurry up and graduate. Come down here and come to the family business so I can go vacation. So, well, you're probably cheap labor for him, so I can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly was left in debt when I left Manhattan. That's for sure. (laughs) So, you had a great apartment. Yeah. Yes. I'm sure. You had a great mentor in your dad. You had a great mentor at the uh, gentleman that you mentioned uh, that you referred to at Lehman Brothers. Tell yeah, Andrew Malik. Yep. Andrew Malik. Tell me a little bit about what you learned from uh, those guys. And also, if there was any other mentors that you would say, geez, this person's just had a profound effect on my growth as a business person. And I learned so much. And Andy was great across the board, you know, even with social elements, you know, a Florida boy you know, in Manhattan, you know, uh, you meet somebody in the street, proper etiquette, doesn't matter how cold it is, you take your glove off and you shake their hand. Days of the coronavirus, I guess you keep the gloves on, but, you know, even how to conduct yourself in a meeting, you know, sit across the table, you know, or side by side, uh, you know, at a corner from them, not behind your desk when you're meeting with a prospective client. And he, he just taught me so much about how to conduct myself in a professional atmosphere and have fun while you're doing it at the same time. Uh, taught me the importance of asking good questions. You know, I don't know if it was he that kind of shed this light, but it was after my father actually passed away that somebody had shared with me the difference between a, a wise man and a smart man. You know, a smart man learned from his own mistakes a wise man learns from another man's mistakes. And I also learned that there's things in life, you know, that you can change and there's some things you can't. I want those that you can't, you have to change the way you think about them. So, you know, after losing my father, I realized, you know, I don't get a father anymore. I don't have anybody to call for those things that you normally would uh, in, in, especially in the business environment. I was encountering new situations time and time again. So I built a board of, trusted advisors. Uh, Some had personal relationships with my father, one in particular, Barry Shockett, who uh, helped me build and create uh, the Rendina Advisory Board that we have today. It was a great way, great opportunity, door-opening opportunities for me with the board to win new business because my father was the face of the company. He really was the only one driving new business opportunities for the company. So I had to figure out a way to replace that, you know, elevated some folks internally, you know, Larry Duran, who's our our co-vice chairman, was retired, uh, worked with my dad from the beginning, you know, the late 80s. So bringing him back into the fold very shortly after my father passed away was great. And it's still a great, you know, he's a mentor and advisor to a number of folks uh, within our company, a great problem solver. And you know, I had enough time around my dad to learn a few tricks of the trade as well. You know, how to 
structure a sale to you know, create the most value for you know yourself and the physician partners in the building, things of that nature. But I, I see it uh, probably more than I, I actually recognize it in the things that I do and, and the way that I act. But you know, I knew I had to be my own man. It was my dad's business. He created it. You know, he was a micromanager. You know, I couldn't afford to be a micromanager. I'm not sure I even knew enough to be a micromanager. So you know, that's when I kind of fell back on asking questions and trying to be a, a wise man. I knew I couldn't afford to make the same mistakes everybody else, you know, makes. So. And while your family was known primarily for investing in developing healthcare real estate, uh, there was also a, a fairly large development that was both commercial and residential that uh, the Rendina companies were involved in in developing uh, here in Jupiter. And it's where our baseball yeah. stadium is. Uh, it's called Abacoa. Give us a little background on how that developed, the partnership uh, range that you struck in that development, and uh, where that stands today. Yeah, that's great. You know, Abacoa is a big part of our you know business, both past and present. We still have you know probably 30, 40 acres of raw land that can be developed in the future. But Abacoa itself here in Jupiter, Florida is a 2,000 acre master planned community, you know, multifamily, single family, custom homes, a variety of different neighborhoods where you can find all of these mixes. I think it's will be somewhere around eight to 10,000 homes or residences by the time we're at full build out, which uh, we are approaching. Uh, my father uh, and George Guardiola was George's vision for Abacoa, which I believe is a is a Indian word for village, and you know mixed use wasn't something that we were all that familiar with, or my father was all that familiar with. But he saw you know an opportunity and the potential. So it was land that was owned by the MacArthur Foundation. Uh, one of the requirements with land that they you know, sell or divest of is that there has to be an education component tied into project. Uh, that resulted in the FAU North campus and the land being given to them. And then, you know, George and, and my dad worked very hard to bring Major League Baseball to North County. It was a big battle back then. You know, North County, South County, who's going to get the teams? Uh, it was the Expos and the Braves, I think, at the outset. And then by the time I think the first pitch went out, it was the Expos and the Cardinals. And then the Cardinals and the Marlins as it is today. And, you know, we, my father took down all of the commercial property. So DeBasta bought the residential, uh, you know, land. Uh, we took down about 150 acres or so of commercial real estate and have developed a lot of what you see in Abacoa today that by way of commercial and mixed-use projects, sold land to the you know, the hotel developer and operator, sold land to the multifamily developer, uh, NRP for the Allure project in Town Center, uh, and then we look to do some development of our own. You know, the next project that we have on the docket here is a rehab hospital uh, that we're hoping to uh, make happen in the workplace uh, within Abacoa, and you know it's built on a concept of live, work, and play. And it spans all generations. I mean, FAU has a lifelong learning program that has over 7,000 students, if you will, seniors that, you know, attend a class or two every week, keep the, the brain sharp. And, uh, you know, it, it's uh, a great community, very family oriented. And it's something that's where our office is located currently. And, uh, you know, we look to continue to do development and, and, you know, bring value to the town of Jupiter and, and Abacoa. And a lot of that development in Abacoa was, at least the commercial parts and the office buildings, was centered around the healthcare community. There's a lot of doctor's offices over there. And then as uh, Florida, the state of Florida made some grants and the county made some grants to develop the biotech corridor in the north part of the county, a lot of that uh, uh, real estate got uh, purpose towards that use. Probably right. hasn't turned out exactly the way that uh, was envisioned 10 or so years ago, or maybe even 15 years ago. But right. uh, 
do you see further healthcare and biotechnology growth in, in that little corridor, in that pocket of Jupiter along Donald Ross and south of there? You know, I see, I see a little bit of biotech and R&D interest, you know, from time to time, sometimes, you know, large, even on manufacturing, whether it be pharmaceutical, you know, something that has kind of a biotech and industrial uh, type use to it. Uh, we currently, we're working with a group uh, who was kind of born and raised here in, in Florida, Alphazyme, and to do a project for them on, we've got about 20 acres left on 30 acre parcel in the workplace. Sounds like they're going to maybe go into the contract, what was the contract research organization space and the Institute for Healthy Living that's on the other 10 acres on that parcel. Um, We're talking about you know, Office Central, uh, Central Boulevard, just north of Donald Ross. Correct, right, right where uh, right before the first roundabout coming off of Donald Ross, heading north on Central. You see the Institute for Healthy Living. There's another 20 acres of land behind there for developments. Uh, we see a lot of, you know, I think the biotech dream, you know, kind of fell flat once we had groups going to different counties, Torrey Pines and or, you know, the names are kind of escaping me uh, with a few of them, but some have even come and gone. But, uh, you know, Cleveland Clinic stepped in and acquired one of those buildings up in Port St. Lucie. And, uh, you know, I would say that you know, the majority of interest that we see is still in the healthcare arena in and around Abacoa. We've had plenty of health systems, you know, sniffing around and looking to acquire land. You know, with uh, the certificate of need going away, it could spawn more development more quickly than you would typically see. And it may not be a hospital, something you know, more aligned with you know, a neighborhood hospital or a micro hospital, which is you know, probably more like 40 beds or 20 beds with freestanding ED, surgery center, imaging, you know, physician offices kind of a smaller footprint, which is a more costly model as well for them, more efficient model for them. For our listeners that may not be aware, Rich, what's the certificate of need mean? So the state of Florida, every state there is, is different. You're either a CON state or you're not. And the certificate of need, and if you are in one of those states, requires you to get government approval before you can build a new inpatient tower to add inpatient hospital beds. Uh, it's still, uh, it's never applied to assisted living facilities or assisted living beds in Florida. It still applies to skilled nursing facility beds. It does not apply to rehab hospital beds any longer. So that creates an avenue for opportunity because the way certificate of need really went. It was more of a legal battle that got drawn out over years, you know, where one hospital will object to another hospital's. And if you recall, with Scripps and the land that they have in Palm Beach Gardens, you'll Brigger Track in Alton, uh, they tried to bring a tenant in there, in my opinion, kind of under the guise of a, of a teaching hospital. Tenant is not world-renowned for being a teaching hospital, if you will. So, and Jupiter Medical Center opposed that, uh, and as did other uh, health systems here in Palm Beach County. And they were successful in negating that certificate of need. It was not granted uh, by the government. So without the government approval, you cannot move forward on a new hospital inpatient project. Now you can. So, you know, I still think, health systems such as Cleveland Clinic or Baptist, you know, they see the quickest way to growth is to align themselves with some of the standalone not-for-profit health systems out there, which we saw happen with Boca Raton Regional Hospital, may end up happening with Jupiter Medical Center, you know, we'll see, you know, it's harder and harder for those standalones to kind of survive, but it's a quicker entryway into a marketplace, which is Jupiter is a very highly desired marketplace. You know, just given the payer mix and the demographic. So, you know, acquiring a hospital is a preferred route than trying to do a grand up, ground up project, especially in the days of CON, it almost wasn't even worth the battle. So nowadays without it, but you still, you know, see they're wanting to be more outpatient type uses when a health system is looking to acquire land. 
Uh, it really is maybe even the first move to kind of bring services into a marketplace. Do you see an immediate need or anything on the horizon for us to have another hospital anywhere in the North County area? Uh, I do think we will have another hospital at some point in time in the North County area. If Jupiter Medical Center were to get acquired, I don't know if that would change. But Baptist and Cleveland Clinic seem to kind of be, and HCA is kind of right in there too, and, and wanting to acquire land, even if it's a, you know, a hold and wait and see type strategy. I mean, Cleveland Clinic owned the dirt that we partnered with them on for 15 years prior to uh, us doing that development project with them on their land. So uh, they see where the growth's going. I mean, Cleveland Clinic bought 40 acres, I believe, in like Lake Worth, Wellington area. You know, they say they've got plans for outpatient facilities there. Not They haven't said anything about a hospital. But I know there's a lot of health systems that very much want to be in North County and Jupiter, you know, kind of specifically, or Palm Beach Garden. So we're uh, abutting, you know, kind of Alton would be a good spot, too. Rich, I'd like to pivot for a second. So to recap you at roughly age 27, take over the business that your father has built. It's a highly sophisticated real estate uh, development firm. Uh, you go through the financial crisis, which we haven't even talked about yet. And I'm sure that was uh, a nightmare, especially in the real estate business. You get out on the other end, you continue to develop uh, a lot of real estate. And uh, Rendina's still humming along in, uh, in, in great fashion with you at the helm and, and your brothers, as well as a, a very capable team behind you. I want to talk now about how you set yourself up at a personal level for success. So I'm just going to ask you some questions about what uh, your life is like. And the first one is, Rich, how do you start your day? What does it look like in the morning for you, aside from waking up with four kids in the house? Right. You know, there's the what I would like to do and then what I actually end up doing, for sure. Probably one of the, the folks that's uh, itching to get back into the office full-time type of thing <clears throat> once this coronavirus or self-quarantine every our quarantine is lifted but you know i'd like to start my day with with exercise you know, at least twice a week i was able to make it happen today with paddle boarding which you know business in paradise i'm able to do right out in my backyard uh, in the lockfatchy river here and i got a great view uh to look out at while i'm sitting here in my uh, home office as well. But, you know, some type of physical activity, I think, helps me mentally get into the day. You know, getting to the office is always, you know, a great motivator as, as well. So, uh, you know, in the home office, you got to find little ways to kind of get into it, get motivated, if you will. So, you know, I, I try to do have a, try to have a lot of work-life balance. And it's not something that I really understood until my bout with cancer in 2011, was diagnosed with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I did, you know, five months of chemotherapy, about nine rounds during those five months. And, you know, unlike my father, I had a very, you're going to have a type of cancer. It's a good, good cancer to have, especially at you know, kind of a young age and being able to fight back. So, you know, I had really good odds and being a real estate developer and a blackjack player, Tell me I've got 65, you know, percent odds of not just beating it, but being cured. I'll take those odds every day of the week. But at that time, I only had Luke, my oldest. He wasn't even one yet. And, you know, wasn't sure if I was going to be able to have any children after the chemo. guess that uh, has panned out quite the opposite. Haven't had any issues there. But that's kind of what led to a gap in between our first two. They're about three years, nine months apart, which is similar to Mike and I, and we're three and a half years apart. So it's like watching history repeat itself. But I see all the similarities, you know, with uh, that I have that with my father, even though he's not he's not here anymore. But, you know, I started off with three boys, he had three boys, I'm running his business, you know, I'm a, you know, I have cancer, you know, long, long list of those types of things. But, you know, when he gave us a choice, Mike and I, Dave was still in college. Uh, before he passed, we sold, started the process to sell our portfolio, really everything in our portfolio at that time, you know, 20 plus buildings, as well as our property management uh, company. And he gave us a choice, you know, do you want to sell the Rendina companies or, you know, do you guys want to 
take it on. And, you know, we didn't hesitate, you know, very fortunate in that we enjoy real estate development as a profession, uh, but, you know, that we wanted to carry on his legacy and, and carry the torch. So we set out as, you know, my brothers and I to be successful in our own right, and you know, kind of put our own stamp on the company business, which we were forced to do through the recession. And then, you know, my dad did warn us. He said, hey, if you guys, you know, want to do this, you want to carry on the legacy, it's going to become your life. It's going to consume you. So be prepared for that. And I kind of brushed that off. And when you don't have kids, it's not that big of a deal to come home and, you know, work in your home office till two in the morning. But, you know, having kids change that and then having cancer change that for me, that kind of caused me to hit the pause button and step back and really think about what was most important uh, to me in my life. And, you know, that's family and friends and wanting to spend as much time with them as possible. And in this day and age, I feel like you can get so much done without being in the office that, you know, I pride myself on blocking out my Fridays for friends, family, you know, remote business, but uh, I don't have any regularly scheduled meetings like I do every other day of the week for the most part, unless it's something that, you know, I approve. So that's allowed me to create balance in my life. I think, you know, doing those things like we talked about, exercise, massage, acupuncture, just, you know, playing around the golf with the buddies, getting out on the water, doing some fishing with the kids, whatever the case may be, just being around, you know, because those are some of the memories that I cherish is, you know, my dad being around and coaching me in sports and all those types of things. So don't, don't want to miss out on any of those memories, uh, either for them or for myself. So. That's a very noble goal. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I do for myself is I do some goal setting at least once a year, usually even more often than that. Just for my company, but for how I want to change as a person and how I want to uh, improve my life. And sometimes it involves people around me, which is one of those things that you alluded to earlier that we have little control over, uh, especially when it comes to our wives. We can't change them. They're just wired the way that they are. And I've given up that battle. But, <laughs> and I think we both won the lottery as far as, yeah. as, far as in our lives. But the, uh, how do you do your goal setting, your own strategic planning? Is there a time that you sit and you think about, hey, these are some things that I'm happy about. These are some things that I would change. Uh, is, is that part of your routine, Rich? It is. It is. Probably was more of my routine in the early days in the CEO suite, uh, seat, I should say. But it is still a component. And, you know, you asked the question earlier about how I kind of you know, mentors and advice. And I didn't even mention Vistage, which you know, we're in, a, in together, but I found that to be invaluable. And that in and of itself can act as, you know, either a reminder or a requirement to, you know, put that strategic plan into place to revisit it every three to five years. And that is something that we definitely still do. And we're in the midst of revisiting our strategic plan right now for the next know, kind of three to five year outlook. So, you know, and, you know, goal setting for the company and then trying to set individual and department goals as part of it. But, you know, I, I keep a lot of stuff and, and I've, you know, stumbled during our office renovation across you know, some of my goals, personal goals that we had done in Vistage years back and just kind of look back at those and see how close I've come to some and how far I've missed on others. But, you know, I, 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 uh, I focus a great deal, I guess, on being in the present, but always also wanting to always kind of keep my head up as CEO is a big part of their job is where are we going and wanting to steer the ship in the right direction. And I feel, you know, culture and spending a lot of time and energy on, on making sure we got the right people in the right seats, the right people even working for the company helps a great deal. And Rich, you uh, mentioned Vistage. And for our listeners that don't know, Vistage is a group of business owners, the CEOs of the businesses, <clears throat> the owners of the businesses meet together on a monthly basis. There's 15 very successful CEOs in, in the room, men and women, that run companies. And in our group, it's mostly companies that are in the North Palm Beach County area. Uh, the group is led by a gentleman that we both have complete admiration and respect for, uh, States Hines, who's uh, been running the Vistage Group for uh, decades now, and States is in his early 80s. 
and uh, just a gem of a human being. Uh, so Vistage for us, I think, is the is a great place for all of these 15 people with big egos to go and be vulnerable so that we can get feedback on how we can improve. Because running our business day to day, we always think we're absolutely right. And how can anybody question or doubt us? But when you get in that room, uh, you get some great feedback. And I'm sure you've got some stories or you've got some thoughts on how that's impacted your career, Rich. For sure. You know, I I am uh, the outlier and that I didn't come in with a lot of confidence. Or, you know, I guess I knew at least enough to know what I didn't know. And it was recommended by a guy that, you know, Pat Conway, who states very close with, you know, runs a predictive index or did, and uh, was actually the guy that hired my dad to come work at Coopers and Librant out of college. So he was the one that recommended I do it. I started in July of 2007. So I was only six months into being CEO when I joined the group. So First questioning, you know, what am I honestly going to be able to bring to these guys? You know, I hope I can figure out some ways to add value, uh, which I certainly think I I have over the years, but it was something I was kind of worried about going into it. Um, And I knew I was going to have a lot of opportunity to learn. And, uh, you know, I brought a lot of issues and opportunities to the group back in those days. And, you know, tough love, you know, is is how it can go sometimes, but that's what you need to hear. And, you know, it's kind of built on the concept of its vestiges, you know, it's lonely at the top, right? Who are you going to talk to as a CEO when you encounter an unfamiliar situation or something that's really confined to, you know, your decision-making responsibilities? So that really helped me be a wise man in a lot of ways, not just a smart man. And I've gotten tremendous value out of the guest speakers that States brings in as well and, and, and then bringing those folks into my business to apply their trade has been a great you know, resource and, and tool in helping us build our success today, for sure. Rich, this has been a great conversation. I have one last question that I'd really like to toss out there to you, because I think that your perspective on this is probably about as good as anyone's. But if you were talking to another family that had a successful family business, and they were thinking about succession, you know, passing the torch from your father to you and your brothers, from you and your brothers, maybe on down to the next generation. What would you say are some of the key things that those families should be thinking about based on the experience that you've had? Well, there's a lot of them, but the first one that comes to mind, you know, immediately is the importance of estate planning and doing those things uh, at a time where it's not difficult to talk about, you know, what is now reality in terms of, you know, your father or loved one, mother, you know, on, on their on their deathbed or facing, you know, a, the battle, a battle that could threaten their, their health and their life brings a whole different emotion into the equation when you have to sit down with the attorneys and the accountants and, and talk about, okay, this is what's going to happen, you know, when your father's not here anymore. So, you know, get those things out of the way when you're healthy and, and don't, and they're not a reality, I would say will help alleviate a lot of stress on both you and, and the family and the next generation, if you will. And, you know, those are only in instances where you get an opportunity to plan, you know, to put all your ducks in a row if they're not, if it was something like cancer, uh, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to get any opportunity to do that. You know, so, you know, it's very important, I think, to have the estate planning in place, the life insurance, the trust set up so that you can minimize, you know, the death and estate tax as much as possible. And then, you know, kind of, uh, you know, my dad was very firm in that uh, he knew, that, you know, all of his boys may end up working in the business, but he felt that there can only be one decision maker, a final decision maker. I'm very collaborative and my management style and decision-making with my brothers. But at the end of the day, there's, you know, one person that needs to, you know, sign these documents or make this decision. And if there's any debate, you know, it's going to be the way that I want to go or whoever picked that one person. And I don't think it always has to be the the oldest. I think you've got to find the one that has the most drive and passion for your business and try to identify, you know, different strengths in all of your children. If you have multiple 
children that want to work in the family business and each of them having an area uh, where they can build their own self-confidence and, and feel like they are adding value and, and having success, I think is, is key. And, you know, having good mentors, setting them up in a position where they're learning for, from someone other than just yourself, I think is important as well. And uh, very valuable to go out and work for somebody else for a little while before you come into the family business full time. I think that's invaluable as well. And, you know, if you can't stay employed with somebody else, you know, what makes you think you can stay employed working for the family business? So, you know, kind of school hard knocks a little bit. Rich, that's great advice for any family going through a similar transition. Before we leave, I just want to, I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the whole idea of how involved in the community your family is and how you decided to give back as a result of your uh, father's cancer and your experience with cancer and the things that uh, your family does through the Rendina Foundation and the golf tournament that you have, Raising the Bar, which I think is your dad's initials, B-A-R. Great initials for a gambler. (laughs) So uh, tell us uh, what's going on with the uh, foundation. What's going on with raising the bar? You have a phenomenal party and then the golf. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, we we look forward to that every every year. I mean, my mom and dad started the Rendina Family Foundation back in 1997. Uh, they had maybe a golf tournament or two, but it really wasn't all that active unless there was a certain, you know project or mission that my dad wanted to raise, mom and dad wanted to raise money for. So uh, after my dad passed, one of the things that he was, you know, very good at and very well known for is, you know, he always traveled with a group of friends. He had a great way of building business relationships that became friendships. You know, their families would vacation with us. So he was always great at bringing his friends and and family together uh, and friends from all different, you know, times periods of his life that he still had friendships with so we wanted to still have that uh, we thought you know doing the golf tournament uh, would be a great way to bring those folks still together and it's great every year sometimes it's the only time I see some of these folks you know a year uh, on an annual basis is through this tournament so it you know it helps keep and it helps keep my old man alive too you know I always enjoy hearing stories about him it, it, and, and things of that nature but it makes him feel present for sure to be uh, with his friends. And a lot of his friends have you know, now become my friends, uh, which is great as well. But the, you know, the foundation at, after my dad passed changed its mission to focus on cancer, cancer research and improving the lives of others with cancer. We pick a charity every year, usually local uh, to Palm Beach County that uh, we want to support and we allocate, you know, the vast majority of, of our uh, proceeds from eat every golf tournament to that group. This year, uh, this past year, it was the Marcus Neuroscience Institute at uh, the Boca Raton Regional Hospital. And they've got a great group of doctors there that are intensely focused on brain cancer. And they have a clinical trial drug. I think it costs about 15000 per patient to might be 30,000, 15,000, let's go 15,000 per patient to put them through the clinical trial. Uh, you know, we were able to raise a hundred thousand dollars to go towards, towards that. And then, you know, we brought it internal to the company as well. And, you know, we had to reinvent ourselves. So we rebranded Rendina Healthcare Real Estate, no longer Rendina Companies. And we did that a number of years ago, but you know, we created our own core values and and we defined them and you know we spent a lot of time focused on kind of core values but we also created mission statement and part of our mission statement is to give back in the communities where we do work and so we donate a minimum of five thousand uh, dollars every year in every location where we own and, and manage a facility across the country um, and it's a great opportunity for us to reach out and talk to our physician tenants or our hospital CEO and say, hey, what charity is most important to you right now? And uh, let's allocate some dollars there. And then, you know, we allocate a lot of time too. We've got a great 
group of people that donate their own personal time to various charities. We do the big heart brigade, the big heart brigade every year. We're serving thousands of turkey dinners and uh, good team building opportunities as well. And then uh, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is another entity that I'm very involved in. I've been involved in with the Palm Beach chapter since 2011, 2012, after my bout. And uh, continue to either, you know, chair, co-chair, junior chair, uh, those galas. Last year, Chris and Jen Harris of Anderson Moore AMC uh, were, our, were our chairs. But this year, uh, you know, Nick and Chris at Coniglio are back with my wife and I and chairing the gala, which will take place in, uh, takes place the last week of January every year. And hopefully that still happens. And that is going to be at Mar-a-Lago this year. But uh, I just was appointed to the national board for leukemia and lymphoma as well. Kudos to Peter Brock, who's on that board and coming to the end of his term, but He's very involved. He was with Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, obviously, and uh, you know, being on the national board, especially. But him seeing what kind of I've, I've done here locally to raise you know millions of dollars to go towards blood cancer research, and the thing I love about blood cancer research is that it translates to other types of cancer research. It doesn't just stop with blood cancer. A lot of blood, a lot of cancer research starts with blood because it's easier to work with and soft tissue so you know cures are first developed you know kind of in that blood cancer arena and then translated into other things such as breast cancer you name it so you know very proud to be involved with that and you know LLS I think was involved with 83 of the 95 patents that were uh, issued by the FDA over the past two years three years in terms of financial support it's truly an amazing organization, and my father's gone through two bouts of cancer. One, the first was a uh, lymphoma. So uh, I, I'm very familiar with the work that you're doing, and thank you for your support. This has been the Business in Paradise podcast. I'm Kerry Stamp, and my guest has been Richard Rendina, who is the chairman and CEO of the Rendina Healthcare Companies here in Jupiter, Florida. They have a national presence. It's an amazing story of success developed right here in Paradise in Palm Beach County. Rich, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us today. Thanks, Rich. Thank you, Carrie. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principal Wealth Advisors. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Commonwealth Financial Network. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Carrie Stamp & Company is located at 110 Bridge Road, Tequesta, Florida, 33469. Securities and advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Thank you.